everybody, and welcome to the Feeling Seen podcast, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. My co-host today is a is a media titan, is a, is a <laughs> podcasting empire unto herself, is an author, uh, is a cultural critic. I mean, I feel like kind of a like a self help guru in some way like just you you can find her latest venture we can only say latest venture romance road test podcast in which she and her husband and another couple uh the the edict is testing out relationship hacks so you don't have to so consider that a pub uh, an act of public service on your behalf and then there's also the movie therapy podcast in which uh she and her co-host deliver uh therapeutic movie recommendations. It is an extension off of a prior movie podcast that she did for years. Kristen Meinzer, you've done so many podcasts. You've done so many things. Those are just two. Uh, is there anything else I've left out of the intro that we should just put out there for people to to grab onto at the start? Oh, no. Then we'd be here all day. I just, yeah, I don't want to list everything. We really everything. would be here, like, all day. <laughs> no, 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 no. I host a lot of shows, but I want to talk about your show because I'm so excited to be here today. I'm just, I'm totally amped. I love your show, and it's such an honor to be here. I really appreciate you saying that. It's, you know... We hope that people tune in if they're going to if like whether before or after they're they're on the show. It's nice to it's nice to think of people being like, that sounds like a good enough idea to try out. So the fact that you think it's a good idea, too. um, I appreciate that. Oh, it's a great idea. It's not just good. It's great. So now, okay, And I say I ask this in like in an entirely not self-serving way. What is it about it that works to you? Because like, there, like there's a billion and one movie podcasts, and and it was just like, well, this seems like a good, and this is an idea I feel really excited about and really passionate about. Um, I was like very aware coming in, like the 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 idea of representation. It's 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 such a buzzword at this point. It means everything and nothing. And I didn't. I am an extremely sincere person, but I didn't want it to be like treacly. So yeah. what do you like? What what niche does it give? Does it fill for you? I'm curious. Well, it does a few things that those other movie podcasts out there. Uh, don't do, don't think to do. A lot of mm. a lot of people just think I want to host a podcast. I really like movies, yeah. and that's it. And it's like, well, what is your show about? Yeah, what, what is the story you're telling? What is driving each episode? Mm-hmm. And and that is missing. I would say from over ninety percent of podcasts about movies, it's just like two dudes talking about like yo, and then Star Wars and the second <laughs> yeah, episode, and then I'm gonna summarize it. Yes, exactly. Um, so I, I feel like you have that element to it. You have a story you're telling in each episode, and you're also bringing home the point that so many people are watching the movies to be seen or mm-hmm. have spent their whole lives watching movies and feeling erased or invisible and desperately wish it wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. And so much of what we've talked about on movie therapy over the years is just, you know, helping people to not feel alone in this world. And, yeah. you know, people will write in for all sorts of reasons, like I'm an empty nester or I'm going through a divorce mm-hmm. or um, I'm going back to school and I'm 50. And I, you know, I, I worry that I'll never find love. Whatever mm-hmm. the reason is that people have written to us over the years, there is so much comfort that can come from feeling less alone. And sometimes we're not ready to talk about it in a support group or, you know, mm-hmm. with our friends, but maybe we're ready to just tiptoe in by watching a movie and seeing ourselves in that way and watch the movie maybe a couple more times and feel less alone. And then mm-hmm. get stronger as far as feeling like, hey, I'm not an anomaly. Um, this movie showing that obviously I'm not an anomaly or there wouldn't be a cast, a crew, writers, <laughs> yeah. actors, and so on making this story. Um, and and it can be a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether we're talking about uh, representation with a capital R, like I'm seeing myself as a woman of color or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somebody else out there is seeing themselves uh Uh, because they're in a wheelchair or, Mm -hmm. you know, because uh, they're trans or whatever it is, um, those things are important. But also our situations themselves, I think, are really important Mm -hmm. to feel less alone. And so much of mainstream media over the years, until quite recently, has really only wanted to show a narrow bunch of things. Isn't it? Isn't it unreal when you really pull back and think (laughs) about it, how it's been like 10 minutes? 
Yeah. It's been yeah. like 10 minutes that people like, you know, there there have been there have been various iterations of, of cinema movements and waves throughout time. There's, you know, the sort of women in prison genre and sort of femsploitation <laughs> era that you have in like the mid-century of the, of the 20th. And then there's obviously the black exploitation era. And then, you know, comes up a bunch on this podcast, the new queer cinema movement of the 90s. Like, But like the idea of it being something that is mainstream, the mm-hmm. idea that it is something that is considered like a good even though it's always been now considered like a good business bet. Yes. In, in, it is, it is, it has been 10 minutes at most in film history <laughs> that that has been the case. That is crazy to think about. Yeah. I mean, if we're to look back at film history, one might, based on mainstream Hollywood, I, I'm not talking about the films of Oscar Michaud or talking about the films of like women directors in the 1940s, but mainstream blockbuster Hollywood movies might give us the impression that the only people who really have agency, who exist, who have their own like internal narrative that's actually happening are white men between the ages of 18 and uh, 40. And mm-hmm. the rest of us just don't exist. Uh, maybe we're accessories. Maybe we're there to say, oh, honey, don't go out there and hurt yourself. <laughs> you know, um, th- those are, you know, the roles for the rest of us. Or, sir, would you like a refill of your coffee? Yeah. You know, um, we are, th- the, we are truly the supporting cast. Yeah, we're there in service of you mm-hmm. whose story matters. And I'm so glad that's changing. And I'm so glad that your show you know, gives a space to talk about that. Well, I, I thank you very much. And I appreciate I appreciate you coming on with me to make some space. And I think this is a perfect transition into what is the character you have brought for us to discuss today, Kristen? Well, I have to tell you, first of all, it was so hard to narrow things down. But it's a fascinating the, exercise to present it to is. people. It really is. And every day I could choose somebody different. But I decided Anne of Green Gables mm-hmm. from the made-for-TV movie series from Canadian Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And I chose her because, like Anne, I am uh, also adopted. And there are not a ton of stories of people just living their lives who are adopted, who mm-hmm get to be centered in the story. You know, sometimes it's the adults who adopt the children who get to be centered, like, oh, this was what happened on our building a family journey, or this is how we as white people learn to be more accepting of black people by adopting these foster kids. We're going to blindside this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but but how often do we actually get to see the adopted person centered and all of their ups and downs and mistakes and fears, uh, and to see them be fully formed humans who are sometimes in equal parts uh, full of righteous indignation and in Mm -hmm. other parts, you know, completely irritating. And sometimes those things are a Venn diagram that overlap. (laughs) And, And Anne of Green Gables does that. She gets to be all of those things that a fully formed human gets to be. And she also happens to be adopted. I I only um, watched this fairly recently in my life for the first time. A friend of mine absolutely loves the the Canadian broadcast miniseries. And she's mm-hmm. like, well, we have to, we have to watch Anne of Green Gables. And of course, I'd heard the name Anne of Green Gables my entire life. I mean, that is it's iconography, like Little House on the Prairie, like <laughs> yes. Anne of Green yes. Gables, and. I didn't think I wouldn't like it. It was nothing like that. But I remember being so surprised at how engrossed I was by it. I was like, man, I get how Anne of Green Gables has been sticking around for a long time. I loved this series. Megan Follows is so good. And it when you, how old were you when you first encountered this miniseries? Oh, my gosh. I, I must have been... 12 or 13. So you were um, I didn't I, I didn't watch it when it first came out. I watched it um, a few years after that. So yeah, I think I must have been a tween or a very young teen the first mm-hmm. time I watched it. And I, I was the ideal person to target <laughs> yeah. with this show for lots of reasons. One, because I already was a Little House on the Prairie super fan. Mm-hmm. That show was syndicated and shown after school mm-hmm. every day in Minnesota when I was growing up. So I watched lots of Little House on the Prairie reruns. So I was already partway there because I, you know, I liked the pinafores. I liked the braids and the bonnets. I already yes. liked that stuff. But um, I also, like I said, that uh, centering somebody whose experience is being adopted mm-hmm. and making that not her whole identity, just one more thing about her. Yeah. Um, because it also doesn't have to be your whole identity. So often uh, that one thing becomes the only characteristic, like 
your personality is you're gay. And it's like, no, you yeah. can have a lot of other <laughs> things other than that can be just like one part of your life. But yeah. that doesn't have to be like your entire identity. Right. Did you now when you were first watching, did that immediately ping for you? You were like, oh, man, like. I, 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 did you realize when you were watching, you're like, wow, I don't see this and I want to. Or was like, did it take some time going through it, realizing that that was something special? Or d- did her being like an adopted character really immediately jump off? You know, I don't really think it hit me until later. The things mm. that stood out to me initially were, oh, she's very literary. She's writing overly flowery stories and poems, mm. as was I. Uh, <laughs> yeah. She was a little bit dramatic. She, just wanted so desperately to fit in. And I wanted to, too, in, I would argue, um, a, a much tougher situation in some ways because I was one of the only non-white kids in the world I grew up in. And for her, she just had to color her hair to try and fit in. I would I would immediately off the bat assume it was a, it was a tougher landscape for you than for Anne with an E, yes. Yes. And, and I don't want to minimize the suffering of this uh, fictional character. I know she had it tough. But, you know... Uh, she not that she successfully did it, but she just tried to dye her hair. The number one way she stood out and didn't look like others was her red hair. Mm-hmm. And don't worry about your hair. I knew a girl once who had hair every bit as red as yours, but when she grew up, it darkened into a real handsome auburn. You have given me hope, Mrs. Lind. I shall always think of you as a benefactress. And I'm not saying her hair looked good after she tried to dye it. It was green. It was bad. <laughs> but um, I couldn't just dye my hair and look yeah. like everybody else. Mm-hmm. I, I am not the same race as everyone else. Oh, we haven't mentioned on the show. If anyone who doesn't know who I am and doesn't have a picture of me in front of them, and why would you? I am Asian, and I grew up in a mostly white community growing up. And my family is white uh, for the most part. And, uh, you know, there is no way to fit in in those circumstances completely. Mm -hmm. And I desperately wanted to. If there was a way for me to do what Anne did and just dye my hair to fit in, I absolutely would have done it. And I went through years just hating the fact that I wasn't white. Right. Oh, it it, it was terrible. I just really, like the associations I had with it, especially in adolescence, were, you know, um, I'm not pretty. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to be popular. No one's ever going to like me. I don't look the same way. I'm not the. Sh- I'm not shaped the same way. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not the same as all of these other kids in my school. And I wish that there was a way I could be. And mm-hmm. you know, once I uh, very fortunately came into adulthood and uh, became much more worldly and mm-hmm. learned to love myself more and had lots of therapy and so on. <laughs> you know, I. I, I absolutely do not feel that way now. There's no part of me right now that goes to bed at night and prays to Jesus when I wake up in the morning, can I be white, please? Right. But when I was a kid, <laughs> I really did want that. I really did. And so, um, you know, Anne has a much, much, much less severe version of that with her right. red hair. But she is also, you know, feeling certain things that I related to and did want to fit in. And her family, um, Matthew and Marilla, uh, they are the brother and sister who adopt her when mm-hmm. she is, I think, 10 or 12 years old. She's mm-hmm. she's a kid when they adopt her. Um, you know, they aren't very fancy or frivolous people. I can never eat when I'm in the depths of despair. The depths of despair? Can you eat when you're that way? I've never been that way. Can't you even imagine you're in the depths of despair? No, I cannot. To despair is to turn your back on God. All she wants is, you know, a puff sleeve dress like the other girls wear. And mm-hmm. I remember feeling that way, too. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what would I do if I could have clothes like the other kids do? I didn't come yeah. from a well-to-do background either. And, oh, gosh, that would be so nice if I could have this brand name. I remember when I was a little kid, all the kids were wearing guest jeans. And I guess. Thought, oh, oh yeah, that's right. If I could have just had a pair of guest jeans instead of, you know, secondhand clothes yep. or, you know, clothes that my Nana got me from JCPenney's clearance rack. Oh my gosh, I would have loved that, you know? And I knew what Anne felt like in that way too. Just just wanting that, you know, that little bit of way to fit in. But then also Anne was very lucky and so was I that I had certain friends in my life who really humored me and thought I was fun and entertaining when they easily could have just thought I was irritating. Because <laughs> Anne is kind of irritating and dramatic. And I think I kind of was too. 
took the brooch because I was too overcome with irresistible temptation. I was imagining I was Lady Cordelia Fitzgerald, and I just had to wear the brooch over the footbridge of the Lake of Shining Waters with the wind blowing my auburn hair over to Camelot. I mean, I have a, I have, I have a big personality, and I, I, the, for me, it's like, it's a sort of vetting mechanism where it's like, listen, if, if we sync up and this works for you, then, like, we're a great match. If you find me, if you find me grating or overwhelming, we're going to know immediately that we don't need to invest any more time in this. So we can go our separate ways. And that's great. <laughs> well, OK, so I, a point you you related to about Anne was obviously, you know, very, very bookish and and very much a girl of the letters. When did stories start becoming really important to you? in your life? When did you start gravitating toward like maybe books specifically, maybe movies, but when fiction and stories and characters were like, I am going to lose myself in these worlds? Oh my gosh. For as long as I can remember, mm. I loved books. I I, I had those uh, read-along books, you know, the mm. little record player with the 45s. I would put those on and then when it was done, it would beep and say time to turn the record over and then it would continue <laughs> reading the book to me I spent hours and hours and hours with those as a kid and I spent hours and hours and hours watching tv and movies mm -hmm. and immersing myself in that world and um feeling the magic and romanticizing it and mm -hmm. uh, getting caught up in certain eras and there was a time where you know many times where I had dreams of, can I live in another time period? Like I dreamed of living in the Anne of Green Gables time period mm -hmm. at one point. At another point in my life, all I wanted as a teenager was to be transported to the Beat era, not realizing how misogynistic and racist it was, <laughs> but I did like the idea. I, I had a handful <laughs> of friends as teens who that was like, they knew they missed their time and their time was the Beat Poets. They knew. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm like, these people will appreciate my bad poetry and my black <laughs> yeah. turtlenecks. I, I will have that Chianti bottle with the dripping candle that might burn down <laughs> yeah. my apartment. I'm going to chain smoke and people are going to clap for me. I, I had <laughs> dreams of living in that era. Um, yeah, and they were always such a big part of my life. And I fantasized about being a professional storyteller in some form or another, mm -hmm. uh, of being the great American novelist. I, mm -hmm. I, I wrote so much poetry. I had books and books of poetry and stories that I wrote. Um, and I just didn't know how I would go about ever, you know, making a living doing that. Would I, right. you know, would, would I be a screenwriter? Like the older I got, the more I realized like, oh, this is a fantasy job. Oh, I get it. <laughs> like, like, that's like saying like, oh, like I'm going to be the next Marilyn Monroe. And it's like, no, you're not. You're not. There's like <laughs> one person per decade gets that job and it's not going to be you. Um, and so, you know, and, and especially coming from the working class background I did and being a first generation college student and not having, you know, any connections or understanding of how you even get that kind of job versus, you know, working retail like my mom did. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how do you even get a job like that? And so uh, I ended up you know, kind of sidelining most of my storytelling dreams for several years after college. I worked in nonprofits. I I worked in fields where I was paid very, very little to do virtuous, boring things. Yes, yes. And then, um, uh, but one of my jobs I had, my first job out of college, I didn't even realize was a storytelling job. I taught film and television classes over the phone to disabled and elderly people and oh. people living with uh, AIDS. Um, and these were folks who couldn't leave their houses mm -hmm. and maybe didn't feel like a real sense of community beyond these uh, phone get-togethers and phone classes. And I tried to empower everybody in my classes to feel like watching movies and watching TV was a political act and mm -hmm. it was a participatory act. You are playing an, a, a role in what matters and how we make meaning in this country and in this world. So watching TV and watching movies means something. And um, so I taught classes like that and, you know, and then did a bunch of other low-paying nonprofit work. But then a few years later, I ended up working in radio at WNYC, which is New York's public radio station. Yeah, yeah. And within a few months, I was kind of pushed on air to talk about movies and pushed to host that first podcast I hosted. Uh, it was called Movie Date with Rafer Guzman. And <laughs> he and I later ended up hosting movie therapy The beginning together. of a long-term relationship with yes. you and Rafer. Yes, exactly. And... Um, 
And I realized, you know, some of these early jobs I had, these low paying jobs, the teaching classes over the phone, Mm -hmm. those were storytelling jobs too, or they were jobs that helped me become a better storyteller later. And I've used all those skills and all these other jobs. And so I'm very grateful that in the end, it was kind of a circuitous route, but I did end up being a storyteller in the end. And I've been podcasting now for over 13 years and writing that books puts you and so like, on. That, that's on ground floor of podcasting. That's before, <laughs> that's before everybody like me was like, I've got a Yeti microphone. I'm a podcaster now. <laughs> and just make it like lockdowns. I was like, what can I do? <laughs> it can just be something I can do on my own that I don't need permission for. That's not going to pay me anything, but that I don't need money from others to make happen. Mm-hmm. And that utilizes my absolute favorite pastime, which is talking. And it was like, well, thank God Apple products are user friendly because I've got GarageBand and that's going to have to do. And <laughs> I started making these things and it's become one of my favorite things I've ever done in my entire life. Likewise. And I honestly don't. I'm not one of those people who is like, oh, of course, everyone's getting on board now. I I really believe anybody who wants to do it should do it. I'm really into the democratizing of storytelling. And by democratizing storytelling, not only do we have more diverse stories in our ears, but those stories eventually leak out into other areas and they affect what we see on screen. So it brings it back around to what you're you know, your goal in the show is to talk about representation. And Mm -hmm. I can speak for myself here. There was at one point years ago, I was up for a gig being a TV reporter, and they pretty much, in so many words, told me I wasn't pretty enough to be on TV. And it's great because like all my years of podcasting gets, guess who gets invited onto TV all the time now to be a commentator. (laughs) So screw all of you. I changed who could be represented by hosting podcasts, and so can you. <laughs> the JCPenney clothing before Normcore was a term. Now you're getting invited on the TV. You are, you are, you are hitting. You are slapping the naysayers in the face at every turn. I am not insignificantly motivated by vengeance, so this is very heartening for me to hear. I, I love vengeance. It's a very productive emotion for me. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back with more from Kristen Meinzer. And of course, we will have one quick thing before I go. And this week, we are recognizing a Hall of Fame achievement of recent birthday boy Tom Cruise. And no, it's not Maverick. We're dipping all the way back into Rock of Ages to remember Stacy Jacks. It's extremely me, so stick around. Um, hi, I'm looking for a movie. Oh, I gotcha. Uh, there's that new foreign film with the time travel. There's an amazing documentary about queer history on streaming. Have I told you about this classic where giant robots fight? Or there's that one that most critics hated, but I thought was actually pretty good. Ooh, I know. The one with the huge car chase, and then there's that scene where... The, the car, car jumps, jumps over, over the submarine. submarine. Wow, who are you eclectic movie experts? Well, I'm Ify Wadiwe. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Alonzo Duraldi. And together, we host the movie podcast, Maximum film new episodes every week on maximumfun.org and you actually just walked into our recording booth oh weird sorry i thought this was a video store you seem like a lady with a lot of problems i'm a psychic my name is psychic carrie i'm ross oh what a pleasure to meet you of course i knew your name was ross as i am a psychic but please take a seat well i was hoping we could talk about about my my podcast podcast. yes i know it's called oh no ross and carrie yes we investigate from Uh science spirituality and claims of the paranormal paranormal. You, you took the words right out of my mouth yes this whole podcast it sounds like it's been a real challenge for you lately actually it's a lot of fun yes exactly because it's so Fun. I don't know how you this do it. This will be $75. Okay, that seems fair. Oh no, Ross and Carrie. At MaximumFun.org. You knew it was a .org. I have a gift. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm talking with podcasting luminary Kristen Meinzer, whose latest project is Romance Road Test which she co-hosts with her by-the-book partner, Joe Lenta Greenberg, and their husbands. Even as a teenager, Kristen felt seen by Anne Shirley, a.k.a. Anne of Green Gables. Let's get back into that. Now, when when you are experiencing, you're obviously experiencing Anne, Anne of Green Gables, at, like, you know, teen tween years, 
were you connecting with Anne throughout the series at the time? As she like, because obviously we start as a little girl, we follow her through her adult life. Were you, were you with older Anne the way you were with younger Anne, or was that something you might have needed to grow into? Oh, I was with all of Anne. Okay, because she was showing us what could happen next, right? Um, maybe you start this way. Maybe you are adopted into a family that maybe is second guessing whether or not they should have gotten you in the first place, which full disclosure, I kind of felt that way in my own household. Mm -hmm. Um, And to go from that to eventually like, you know, living her dreams, Mm -hmm. doing great things. And uh, I, I have to be very honest with you here, falling in love, which was something I wasn't sure would ever happen to me. As a kid, I just thought, Oh, I'm so in love with so many boys. I was in love with boys. I can tell you every boy I had a crush on, starting with Patrick Golden when I was in kindergarten, all the way up to 15 minutes ago. Every boy I've ever had a crush on. But would a boy ever love me back? And Mm -hmm. I had serious doubts about it. I oftentimes wondered, like, who will ever love me? And just that alone, to be able to see somebody who was an outcast be embraced and loved by a boy, mm-hmm. that felt so good to me to see that, to see her have such loyal friends, to have people who were, you know, kind of negative Nancys and town gossips mm-hmm. in the end show that they actually were still on her team. All of these things, it, it was great for me to see. And for her to also, again, I, I can't uh, overstate how important this was to me as a kid, to see her grow up and be considered pretty. Mm-hmm. And to feel like maybe that's a possibility for me too someday. Maybe someday I'll grow up and people might think I'm pretty. It's it's such a I feel like that the you know we've had this like broader conversation leading up to this point in the, in the specifics as well about like why seeing ourselves in places even if it's not like a linear one to one um means so much in the ter- in terms of like possibility like i remember cuz i i identify on the asexual spectrum and when i was growing up like there there weren't any there i i knew all about everybody else's love stories like i i just like there was so much of me that sort of assumed like and kind of contentedly like oh yeah like i i guess that's not like for me because nothing I see around me lets me know that there is any other kind of intimate relationship that really matters beyond the person that you marry and you inevitably have children with and you forsake or deprioritize all of their connections in your life in favor of this one, as the term would go, significant other, therefore, by implication, making everything else less significant. And that <laughs> everything else is the space I exclusively exist in. And so it's to have only recently, like we've talked about, like the past like 10 minutes, really feel like there are friendship love stories that are being made that honor those kinds of bonds and show a range of what intimacy can be between two people who don't have a sexual relationship. I remember when like somebody told me that the character of Todd Chavez on BoJack Horseman was asexual. (laughs) And I was like, well, that's funny. And I didn't watch BoJack. I still haven't watched all of BoJack. I hear it's tremendous. But, like, I just watched the scene, like, I just watched the episode where where Todd comes out. And I was completely taken aback by the fact of my crying when he was like, I'm asexual. I would you even- You can tell me if you're gay, it's fine. This isn't the 1600s or some places in the present. I'm not gay. I mean, I don't think I am, but I don't think I'm straight either. I don't know what I am. I think I might be nothing. Oh, well, that's okay. Yeah? Yeah, of course. I just got overwhelmed to tears and I was like, what? Like, it, it, I, I'm good with myself. I've always been good with myself. I didn't think it would mean that much to me to hear somebody say it on a thing that I know tons of people see and watch and is a critically acclaimed. And, uh, but apparently it did. And I was like, well, shit. I didn't even realize, like, I knew it was absent horrifically from the creative bounds of imagination of so much of what we see in film and television. But to see somebody actually just say it, was like I, I guess I've been waiting 30 years for that and I didn't even realize it really staggering moment for me yeah I think it's a powerful thing to see ourselves in the world to not feel abnormal because 
when it comes down to it, the world, uh, we're treated like we're abnormal so often. Yeah. You know, we live in a commercial culture where everything is commodified and we are constantly being pushed products to fix that thing that's broken in us. And by default, we're all you know, broken. But if we're all broken, doesn't that mean that we're all normal too? <laughs> yeah, doesn't that mean that's And that what's none ordinary? of us are abnormal? If all of us are this screwed up, we must all be totally fine. <laughs> and why aren't all of our stories being told? Oh, because some people lack real imagination and because they don't understand um, you know, the bottom line of, you know, how business works. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe if you marketed to all of these other people, then you would get the other 90% of human beings dollars as well. Maybe yeah. they would be buying movie tickets also, you know? Did you foresee when you started like getting to embark on your career of storytelling? Did you foresee yourself and your story and your experience being such a part of the ways you communicate with people? Or were you like, damn, I'm like I'm like kind of the main character here and I'm putting a lot of myself out there? Like, did that surprise you? Or was that like, no, that was always kind of what I, my desire, my plan? Well, it was, it was kind of funny because the first thing that really um, struck a chord with a lot of listeners when they'd hear me on public radio was some of them, especially back in those early days, said, oh, she, she talks funny. She sounds like, um, you know, a farmer from the... Uh, fields of Wapiton, North Dakota, or, you know, <laughs> she doesn't sound public radio. She, mm. um, you know, and, and uh, I, I'm from Minnesota, so I have a Minnesota accent. And apparently it used to be quite a bit thicker before I became, you know, more practiced with being on the radio and so on. <laughs> um, get a margarita in me, it'll come out thicker. But, um, <laughs> but that was the first thing to really stand out was um, people who have coastal accents are what we're used to as the default on yes. TV, on radio, in movies. And people who sound like me are frequently the punchlines or it's made into a joke, like in the movie Fargo or, yeah. you know, um, Drop Dead Gorgeous or any of those things Completely. that, you know, yeah, any of those stories that take place in the upper Midwest, it, it's just a punchline. Uh, it's not treated like, oh, that's just another way people talk. Uh, so that was the first thing to stand out. But then quickly on the heels of that, people writing in saying, oh, why do you talk like that? You're Asian. Um, I saw a picture of you on the website for WNYC. You don't look like you talk that way, uh -huh. which the people who were writing like, in to tell say me that. how Asians talk. There are a lot of us. <laughs> hey, 60% of the people on the planet are Asian. Are we yeah. all supposed to talk exactly the same way? You have an Asian accent. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> and the people writing in were really just telling on themselves. And I still get this email yes. all the time where people write in and they're like, oh, my gosh, I just... I thought it was so funny. I've been listening to you for years on your various podcasts. And, and I finally just like decided to look up a picture and <laughs> you you don't look like your voice. <laughs> oh my God. And, and um, that in a way really, I mean, I think played a role in me wanting to make sure I am talking about my race, mm -hmm. not constantly, but to, you know, when relevant to bring it up and mention it in the story, um, mm -hmm. to include it as part of my life experience and so on. And maybe people more often now will hear like, oh, yeah, I don't have to look up your picture. You're just like somebody who talks like that and you're <laughs> Asian and it comes up in conversation sometimes and that's fine. Um, so that certainly came up with my identity and mm. not everybody likes it. You know, when mm. um, on one of my shows by the book, we live by the rules of self-help books on that show. And uh, we were living by one book at one point um, called Everybody's Got Something by Robin Roberts. And it was really about reckoning with tough things in our lives. And at that point, there were a lot of Asian hate crimes happening. The mm. spa killings in Atlanta had just mm. happened. And um, I talked frankly about a hate crime that happened to me. And some people wrote in and said, you know, I don't really listen to you, Kristen, to hear you talk about politics. And <laughs> Um, mm. It was like, oh, mm, interesting. You you mm. call hate crimes politics. Interesting. There. Yeah, yeah. In interesting. Mm, that's great. Cool. What that's, a euphemism so, you've applied to that hate crime just now. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I, I have more and more and more in my work um, talked about race. It's not my main goal to hit people over the head with it, because I actually feel like talking about equity, inclusion, racism, homophobia, the best way to do it actually is not to preach to people. Um, 
the best way I find to do it is kind of like hiding the broccoli and the mac and cheese. Where uh-huh. it's like, like people are like, mm, this is delicious. I love this. And then maybe after Hide the broccoli in the hot dish. Yes. Oh, yes. The hot dish. So maybe after eating like three or four pans of hot dish after that, suddenly maybe it might hit that person like, oh, my gosh, it just hit me. Yeah. Maybe it's not right that this whole time I thought white was normal and everybody else was other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be something as subtle as that, or it's like, oh, maybe it hit me for the first time after listening to many, many episodes of Christian's show that I referred to white people as American and Asian people as not American, uh-huh. you know, which is a super, super common thing in America. Right. Um, it's a super common thing where people will be like, I didn't realize, but I guess I was one of those people who I'd meet an Asian person and I would play guess the ethnicity or like, or I'd right. ask where they were from. And um, so I try not to hit people over the head with it, but you know, if bits and pieces come through as we're laughing, as we're telling our stories, um, as we're discussing movies, whatever it is, I'm happy that people are here for those conversations. And then little bits and pieces get infiltrated, hopefully, into their consciousness. So they're thinking more broadly in other areas. Now, when when you when you encountered Anne for the first time, had you prior to that, felt like there was a character that really landed with you and maybe maybe Anne one up to her or was that kind of a revelatory experience in in identifying with 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 someone on screen where you were like this checks so many more boxes than anybody has before oh my gosh there are so many characters both uh for good and for ill that I attached <laughs> myself to when I was a kid um do you have a villain of- edit Kristen do you have oh. a villain edit character Here's one that, like, looking back, it makes me so sad. So there were almost no Asian people in movies, on TV. I mean, maybe in Asian films there were, but not Asian Americans, I should Mm -hmm. say. Asian American people, if there were Asian people in U.S. media, it was usually somebody playing a foreigner Mm -hmm. or working at a car factory to take your job if you're a white person or, you know, whatnot. But there was this TV commercial for Calgon uh, Laundry Powder. And I remember as a kid, whenever this uh, commercial came on TV, I got so excited. And Is that the ancient Chinese secret? Yes. Yep. These white people would go like, like, Mr. Chang, how do you always get my white so white? Ah, Miss Johnson, ancient Chinese secret. <laughs> how do you get shirts so clean, Mr. Lee? Ancient Chinese secret. My husband, some hotshot. Here's his ancient Chinese secret, Calgon. You see him washing with Calgon. And I'd get so excited, and my mother would be horrified, like, oh, this is the worst commercial. But I was excited because he was really one of the only people I got to see on TV who looked like me. Um, it yeah. was him. It was Al on um, Happy Days, who mm-hmm. was Pat Morita. Um, yep, yep. See, I speak Japanese, Chinese, uh, Korean, a little Hungarian. <laughs> well, tell me something. What do you consider yourself? Good looking. Uh, Connie Chung on the Nightly News, which I was way too young to watch as a kid because, like, I didn't really watch the Nightly News as a kid. Um, Yeah, fair. And um, there just were not that many options. So I would attach myself for good or for ill to, Mm -hmm. you know, these problematic commercial advertising characters and so on. Um, But I also would attach myself to things. My Nana was my best friend growing up. I would attach myself to characters on shows that she watched. I was very, very, very attached to the Golden Girls as a kid. I loved the girls. I still love the girls. I am a rose all the way. Somebody who a lot of people think I'm just, you know, um, uh, maybe not so smart and I'm very sunshiny, but maybe I'm smarter than people realize, mm-hmm, I, I, mm-hmm. which is not to toot my own horn. It just means people sometimes underestimate me, I think. And I think Rose is the same way where people oftentimes underestimate her. And it's like, you know what? She's not as dumb as you people think she is. <laughs> <laughs> her happy smile doesn't mean she's stupid. <laughs> you know what? I had a boss who, like, best boss I've ever had. Wonderful woman. Um, but I started working there as an intern and she was my like intern overseer. And, you know, when it's hard when you start as a place at a place as an intern for people to see you as something else other than Mm -hmm. that, if you stay past the internship, you get a job there. It's like when you start as an assistant, people kind of keep you in that box because you're a subordinate and that's how they see you. But my boss was, there were multiple times where she like had gave me sit downs about like, you know, very loving, very, like, motherly, but very, like, you know, 
you need to be more serious at this place if you want people to take you more seriously. And just, like, basically telling me without telling me to dress more maturely, to, like, not laugh as much, and just do things that would convey a sense of, like, I was grown and confident and I was a person to be reckoned with in the workplace. And then I remember one day, for, I don't know why I got to work so early, no idea, only me and her in the office, I'm sitting right in front of her, and we just get on talking about my family, and I start talking about my dad, and drug abuse, and um, him, you know, slipping back into it with the pills, but then getting cleaned up, and my parents' divorce, and like, and I have no problem talking about any of this stuff, it's been completely ordinary for me to discuss my entire life, and just watching her watch me explain, having had things happen to me, her whole demeanor changed. I remember at the end of the conversation, she was like, she really said, she was like, I had no idea you'd been through any of that. She's like, you really are just a happy person. Like, you just, this is this is sincere. Like, you, you choose to be. And I was like, yeah, it's just like how I prefer to be. And fortunately, it comes naturally to me. And we never had another conversation after that about how I needed to be more serious to be taken seriously in the office. Because I think up to that point, to her, it wasn't possible that I could have the energy that I do and have experienced hardship. I was just sort of like wonderful, blessed, untouched. Like, I don't know. Maybe oh, kind you're of just smooth. vapid. You don't know what real struggles are. There's yeah. no complexity to your thought. I'm, exactly. I'm so glad you brought this up because it actually like it it shows one way actually that Anne of Green Gables and Rose mm. from the Golden Girls and you and I'd like to think myself are similar um, mm-hmm. and you know it, it comes out at a certain point like Anne of Green Gables in her prior foster homes she was very very violently abused yeah, she was treated yeah. terribly and um and anybody who maybe didn't know that background might just think, oh, she's got her head in the clouds. She's exactly. all flowery and stupid. And she has no idea of the real world, you know. She's uh, just coasting through life, unencumbered. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's not true at all. Uh-huh. That's not true at all. And same with, you know, Rose on the Golden Girls. It comes out from time to time. You'll hear things about how really tough her life was like back on the farm and in other mm-hmm. situations and all the stuff that she's gone through. And um, they kind of, you know, I'm not saying everybody has the constitution to do this um, or that everybody absolutely should do it, but they decided, like, I'm going to, you know, do my best to be happy under these circumstances. Yeah. Um, and happiness is, you know, it's a muscle. The more you flex it, the stronger it gets, and maybe it gets easier than to not have to try to be happy anymore, but it becomes kind of the status quo, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we see that in Anne of Green Gables all the time. And and I've had a similar story to you, Jordan, where it's like people have written into some of my shows and after hearing some of the really, really tough things I've been through in my life mm-hmm. and have said, you know, I thought that you were, you know, just so sunshiny and mm-hmm. I would listen to your shows and think, I wish I could be one of the happy people. And... Then I learned about, you know, the childhood abuse. I learned about the hate crimes. I learned about, like, yeah. uh, the you know, all the terrible things that you've been through. And I realized, oh, my gosh, I don't have to be born into a perfect life to be a happy person like Kristen. Kristen wasn't born into a happy, perfect life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and to that, I say nobody's born into a happy, perfect life. Some people have way more advantages than others. And those advantages can make life easier. Mm-hmm. But... Um, even those people oftentimes have to struggle to choose to be happy. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that I think that's something that I <laughs> this has turned into like a meta conversation about the ethos <laughs> of the show. But like, I think that's something that I en- enjoy so much about doing this show, and I, I try to be really emphatic about wherever possible that it just like the expectation when I ask people to bring a character where they felt seen. That doesn't mean I think you have an answer, actually. That doesn't mean I think you have an easy answer. That doesn't mean I think you have a single answer. It could be a multitude of things. And so much of the point, so much of what I want to accomplish in doing this is operating with the assumption, operating with kind of, yes, kind of the assumption that like, I'm going to assume most people I ask 
don't have an easy answer and that that is part of the conversation and that the absence of being able to have an answer is as much a part of dealing with this dealing with this question as is anything else like I want to honor the fact that most people don't get to choose a character that they saw on television growing up or in movies because it made so much sense to them they had to retcon their way into the story and they had to jigsaw their personal experience onto something that maybe physically aesthetically didn't align with them at all but they got to be somewhere so that is that is part of the assumption of this question is knowing that people aren't going it's not me blithely assuming that this is something fun that everybody can do and isn't going to be like a difficult <laughs> ask no i assume like it might be work for a lot of people and and it's work that i hope people are willing to do with me which is what you have done and i appreciate this wow i i have to say it it is just such a fun thought exercise you know when the you know when i first uh got the invitation to be on the show just to like think like, oh, who do I choose? Who do I choose? Because I could go so many different directions. I could mm-hmm. tap into different facets of myself. People who spoke to my heart when I was 21 are not necessarily the same people who speak to my heart, you know, right now. Totally. Yeah. Well, okay. So then like, as we come down toward the end of it, given that we both we both seem to love vengeance and we are both shiny, happy people, who is your vengeance avatar? Like, what have you, like, we we recently talked about a horror movie together, so I don't know if you're, like, a horror movie fan overall. Catch us on Pop Culture Happy Hour, y'all. <laughs> um, but, like, did you have, was there any kind of character like that where you were like, man, if I could be Ripley in the robot at the end of Aliens 2, like, who's that figure, maybe? Carrie. Yeah! <laughs> yeah, it's Carrie. <laughs> You fucking dickheads taunting me on your dumb, stupid bicycles. Yes. You are going down. All of you fucking assholes in this school who make me feel like a nobody, you're going down. Oh, everybody in this town who has never stood up for me, you Mm -hmm. are going down. Yeah, and if I have to go down with things too, that's fine. That's fine. I'll go down with you. But I will go down on top and the rest of you are burning. Yeah, Carrie. I, Carrie, I will make you stand before me in awe and terror if we are going down together. And the last thing you see in this world will be me dominating you. Yes. And you're going to be icon, sorry. Carrie White. <laughs> Carrie White. Yes. That is a perfect answer, Kristen. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this with me today and for for o- opening with Anne of Green Gables and closing with Carrie White. That is the future that liberals want, I'm going to say. It is. Bookending with two very important redheads, very powerful <laughs> ones that we can all see ourselves in, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Kristen. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much, Jordan. This was great. Thank you again to Kristen Meinzer. Fun fact out there for you all, by complete coincidence, just hours before recording this interview, um, Kristen and I met for the first time on Pop Culture Happy Hour. There we were, popping up on the same Zoom. Uh, And we will put a link into the show notes for that in case you guys just can't get enough, because how could you not? Um, And Romance Road Test is available on Audible, and it is right in the middle of its 16-episode run, so you can dive in and catch up on that now. And now, as promised, the very Jordan Cruciola promise in the one quick thing before I go, we're going to give a little shout-out to Stacy Jacks. And if you're like, I don't know who that is. I don't, I don't know that I want to know who that is. How, like... Yeah, okay, maybe I saw the trailer for Rock of Ages, and then I decided that I would fully skip out on that. I I enjoy that movie. I have a great time with it. It's not a fun movie that I'll be like, oh, yeah, underrated gem. You got to check it out. Like It's going to change your life. It's not one of those. I've got plenty of those I will stand for. This is not one of them. But what absolutely could make it entirely worth your time, the whole runtime, is... Tom Cruise in a like you know people got all excited about his Tropic Thunder performance he shows up like just makes these little appearances stealing the scenes stealing the show as the Holly screaming belligerent Hollywood executive and it's like OMG Tom Cruise look at him you know 
Tropic Thunder is not the man's best surprise. It's Tom Cruise doing something completely fucking crazy, um, being the absolute most. The best version of that Tom Cruise actually uh, is maybe either the little bit that he did with Ben Stiller during the like n- like 1998 or 1999 MTV Movie Awards where like he parodies himself with Ben Stiller. That's maybe one of his great performances. But what we're here to talk about today is Tom Cruise as a as a like em- existentially washed but like world famous phenomenon success successful rock star Stacy Jacks who is just like. I don't know, man. It it's like blissed out, but also depressed out at the same time. I think we meet Stacy on a bed filled with women, which is you know not like the first thing you think of when you think of Tom Cruise in the twenty first century. Tom Cruise waking up shirtless on a bed filled with writhing women. That's like not really the brand he's cultivated, but he is just like a he is a rock star so famous that he is on a different planet from the rest of humanity. You know he just like is not experiencing the world as a human anymore. And this is Tom Cruise fully committing to perhaps the most absurd role he's ever he's ever devoted to screen. And he like he closes this movie with a rock performance of Stacey Jacks, where you've just seen him like whispering and and slithering his way through any scene he's in and then he comes alive as a rock star in the end you're like oh yeah that's Stacy fucking Jacks and you're at the same time you're like that is Tom fucking Cruise like that is the movie star not just a movie star but maybe the movie star who all these years later this all these years ago we're just looking like early 10s rock of ages and now the man is like breaking box office records again with maverick with top gun maverick the enduring power of tom cruise happy 60th man um but really complete the picture of your tom cruise awareness there's magnolia out there there's top gun original there's top gun now there are all of the ethan hunt mission impossible movies which are (laughs) I like him, but so much better than the Daniel Craig spy super franchise of the 21st century and Bond. Like, Ethan Hunt kicks his ass 10 times out of 10. Sorry, everybody. Um, but really, go into, the, go into the archives and find Tom Cruise singing, I want to know what love is, into the vagina of Malin Ackerman. While she is laying on a pool table in, like, the basement of a bar on the Sunset Strip in the 1980s. That is what lies ahead. Everyone's clothed. Don't worry. Um, That is what awaits you. Tom Cruise in ultra low-rise leather pants with long hair and a cowboy hat and no shirt. In a 2012 movie that absolutely bombed because it deserved to. Because it told you, it told you that a... a epic jukebox musical could be carried on the backs of Diego Bonetta and Julianne Huff, and Julianne Huff wasn't gonna dance even in it at all. So that should tell you just how astray this movie was from what, like, could have or should have worked. But you know it does work? The thing that always works. Tom Cruise. So yeah, that is the one quick thing before I go. Dedicated to you, Phil Iscove, from the reservoir of my fine taste. Stacy Jacks. I know me and you can at least agree that that is a great performance. And that is our show. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Crew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Ethan. This show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.